And here. We're recording now. Yes. It's been a while. It's been a fiscal quarter. Oh boy, has it? Really? Yeah. Oh. Has it ever? How financially aware you are. That's weird. It's been a rough fiscal quarter. Yeah, wait, wait till it says fungible. <laughs> It turns out we're very fungible to the government. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> well, uh, anywho, my name is Summer. Somerset Winter's Throw. And we have here... You have not even introduced the podcast. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's been so long. I Welcome to Space Biff Spacecast Book Poda... What, what are we called again? Space Biff Book Space. Space Biff, space Biff Book Space. <laughs> I, I intentionally, oh gosh, I intentionally name things difficult think, difficult to say because I think it's personally funny and then other people have to say it. So you can. Uh... Space Biff Book Space. Yeah, there it is. <clears throat> That's right. Welcome. It's like our 411th episode or something like that. I don't know. I don't, yes. I can't keep count. Yeah. I mean, and um, a lot of those are secret episodes. Just yeah. Like yeah. Right. Um, personal musings, you know, sometimes just in my head. Exactly. Probably. Right. For all the books I read. <laughs> Which means that you could call them master auditory. <laughs> oh, heavens. But wow. maybe yeah. shouldn't. Wow. Oh my gosh. I don't call them that. <laughs> Today we're talking about a very dense book called Two Like the Lightning. Is that what it's called? Yes. Uh, by Ada Palmer. Now, I have a question already. Summer, how long did it take mm. you to finish this book? When did you finish? Um, two days ago. Just under the wire. Just nailed so it. So basically a school semester. <laughs> hey, that's the quarter. What? That, that is about how long it took me. Yeah. I think I've been finished for maybe two weeks. Okay. I don't think there's any shame in how long it took me to read this very difficult book. Why? Is something going on in the world that right. stressed a, you out? <laughs> I've read this happened. one and the next one. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Because you have a lot of extra time. We get it. <laughs> that Brockstar and I do not. Some of us can't go in person to our usual jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I must. Anywho, um, let's uh, let's rate this. Let's rate this thing. Um, as you as you may recall, we're going to give a descriptor word and then a thumbs up or a thumbs down. There's no in the middle. There's no neutral. Who wants to go first? Oh boy. Now you tantalized me earlier, Summer, by saying I did. that you could not wait for me to hear yeah, your descriptor. I, so I actually kind of right. want you to get it over okay, with. Okay, I'll go first. Is everyone ready? I just don't want it to influence anyone else's descriptor word. If you haven't thought no, about I, it, no, I'm ready. Rock, are you totally ready? I am. Okay. okay. All right. <clears throat> Unrecommendable. Thumbs up. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, I'm glad. Did you like that? Yes, and I'm surprised it's a thumbs up, but I'm happy that it's a thumbs up because I am going to rate this a thumbs up the butt. Ew, <laughs> that's not a word. <laughs> well, I said thumbs up, and then I said a word, but wow. and I used an article. Wow. I used I didn't use that. Yeah. Articles barely count. Wow. 
<laughs> All right, Bob, what about you? I I think I I have to give it a ponderous thumbs down. Nice. Yes, yes, I am so glad <laughs> that we don't agree. It sounds like we have three totally different perspectives on this. Absolutely. Well, that'll be exciting to talk about, or not, because it may have gone over some people's heads. Aka <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>, mine. <laughs> My wife did not get a degree in philosophy. I did not. How about you, Brock? You know, I have neither a degree in philosophy nor in history. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now here, let me ask you another question on a thumbs up uh, to a very big thumbs up. How geared toward Dan Thoreau do you think this book was? Oh my gosh. I think. Um, absolutely. This is, that is the only person I would recommend this book to after having read it. My... So of all my acquaintances who asked me for <laughs> book recommendations, this is not on that list ever. Yeah. Well, Dan no. would never ask me for a book recommendation because he reads them all before I recommend them. to <laughs> <laughs> if, But if he ever comes out of a coma, yeah. he's forgotten all the books that he ever read. Yes, I can be like one. you should read Two Like the Lightning. I think you will love it. Yeah, uh, I did. It. Yeah, <laughs> my discussion topics. I have a a question that says, "Was this a book chemically engineered to appeal to Dan's psyche?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to discuss that. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to some wrong spoilers, Brock. I'm excited to hear what you came up with. So I have I have first a completely unrelated. Uh, I need to know, Dan and Summer, uh -huh. your favorite dinosaur. Um, Ankylosaurus. Okay. And Summer? Um, I'll just say like a raptor, like a velociraptor, because I don't really know dinosaurs. Okay. It's a great choice. Okay. Dan and I share a favorite dinosaur. I discovered, and it's been, wow. of course, months now. Oh, my gosh. And then I discovered... That for my whole life, I have been pronouncing it wrong. It's pronounced. How are you saying it? It's pronounced. It. I have always said it. Ankylosaurus. It is the way I said it. Ankylosaurus. Ankylosaurus. And if you look at the way it's spelled, it's spelled Ankylosaurus. Does it have something to do with an ankh, like its general shape? It is ankh-like, and I. Oh, they do live forever. I forgot to mention. I'm just making things up. I have Onkylosaurus. No idea. On, onky, onkylosaurus. Yeah. That's stupid. It's kind of like wrong. Honk. It feels wrong to say it out loud, right? <laughs> it does. It's, it does. It's bad. Uh, well, I am, you guys can keep saying Ankylosaurus. I won't tell anyone. Well, we can, you know, people mispronounce my name all the time, so it's fine. Yeah. You got to return the favor. That's kind of on purpose, too, though. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like. Uh, it, it's a, it takes a particular kind of child nerd to pick the Ankylosaurus as their favorite dinosaur. Yeah. Does it? But it, oh, yeah. but I think it also regularly beaten up is it's the kind of nerd who's like, I'm not going to pick a T-Rex. That's what, that's what everybody would pick. Mm. Yeah. Just mm. because it's so cool. <laughs> mm. Just because it's such a cool, great dinosaur. Uh, and so then you pick the one that can turtle. <laughs> yeah, and hit things with its tail. Oh, is it that one? Yeah, it kind of looks like a turtle. Yeah, he's and like he has armored. A weird, he has a weird helmet on, right? Well, no, and he like had, an onk? and his tail is like a mace. Mm. It's the it it's the cleric one? of dinosaurs. Yeah, it's the, <laughs> oh, Brock. 
<laughs> Rock, you just won Wait, the, the podcast. Wait, this dinosaur field? It, it's just like... Well, no one knows. It's like a... Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point. Oh, Paleontology. I'm sorry. So does this have anything to do with, with the book? This like at all? Nothing, this has nothing. <laughs> I haven't talked to you guys in a long time. Oh, okay. All right. This is what happens... When we wait a fiscal quarter. Let's make sure we put this in the podcast because it's been very interesting. Okay, good. Learn these nerdy facts about you two. Well, I don't think we can take it out. Brock is technically our sound engineer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's up to me. (laughs) Leave it in. (laughs) Uh, So on that, yeah, let's let's move to some wrong spoilers. Okay. Uh, So I did some digging here, you know, as as I typically do. Uh, I had to hack into Ada Palmer's personal server uh, and I did find some alternate titles that were considered. Mm. Uh, The first alternate title, uh, not enough like the lightning. And, you know, she thought that one, well, that's not quite, not quite there. It's not quite right. Uh, The next title she considered exactly like the lightning. And she went, Oh, that's too far. (laughs) That one is, that one's not, uh, the, the next alternate title, All in Buffamily. And that's oh, my. I had, I had another, I had another one and I hoped, oh, I just was hoping I would be able to make it fit in some way. And it was, don't tell Bamam the babysitter's dead. <laughs> that seemed a little silly, even for my... Wrong spoiler segment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Very good. And then this is another one that I just, it was just a called shot. And I just said, I hope this makes sense. And it was the three Mycroft problem, uh, <laughs> which it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense, but It'll, it makes, it makes two thirds sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See, it's pretty close. It's a passing grade. Oh dear. Uh, <clears throat> now, uh, here's a, here's a wrong spoiler. I did not giggle the first time I pronounced nipos out loud, so it sounded like nipples. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't giggle. Um, the uh, this this book was the winner of the 2016 Nebula for best mentions of prepackaged sandwiches. <laughs> Do you guys know that? What? <laughs> There's so many mentions of prepackaged sandwiches. <laughs> I don't remember this. <laughs> oh, I guess there are. All right. Yeah, that's Minecraft how everybody fed Minecraft. Prepackaged yeah. sandwiches. Yeah. Uh, now, in my hacking, I also came across some uh, some chapter titles that <laughs> discarded. Oh no. Uh, one of them was, uh, and oh. Dan is going to love this chapter title. Uh, Percentum anorum nos latine loquae satis iterum. <laughs> Rock. What does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean? Can, did you, did you, uh, did you I get have it? no idea what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I think that, it, <laughs> that it's Latin for. In a hundred years, everyone will speak Latin. (laughs) (laughs) It's a utopia. (laughs) (laughs) 
where we bring back dead languages. That was funny. Okay. They barely even speak. They speak like weird Latin. Yeah. No, it's, it's bizarre. Okay. I I really want. I really want at least one of you to get this chapter title. And the chapter title is Poor Jed is Dud. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Jed is dead. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. <laughs> I don't care if that doesn't Poor land with anyone else. Is dead. 400 people who <laughs> download our podcast. If it doesn't land with them, I'm just happy that it. <laughs> well, if anyone's watched um, the Watchmen, the Watchmen recently, they might they yeah, might they, also oh, get it. That, oh, interesting! Yeah. I have not, but that's good. I to think know. you like it, Brock. I bet I would. I I'm pretty certain I would. I wouldn't watch it with the kittles around. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the impression I get. Yeah, Brock, I have it on DVD. I'll loan it to you when uh when Next the world is repaired. Oh my goodness, that would be lovely. <laughs> Okay. Uh, the next chapter title, I have, I have apparently a lot of fun with chapter titles. Oh, wow. Uh, adult TikTok House, the book. <laughs> uh, Gross. The next chapter title was C-SPAN with a boner. <laughs> it was. Uh, the next, uh, that same chapter was also almost titled See spank, <laughs> and then and then another one for that chapter. I see London. I see France. C span in their underpants. <laughs> Brock, when you hate a book, <laughs> it inspires me. Lovely. <laughs> oh, here's the last wrong spoiler. Uh, all the lists of names were very useful and interesting to me. That's the last one. <laughs> oh great. man, thanks, Brock, thanks, you Brock. have uh, you have perfected the form. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, and now let's move on to the real spoilers and talk. Have Dan synopsize this book if it's at all possible. Okay. In uh, in homage to this book, uh, the forthcoming spoilers will often be rendered in long sentences. Okay. <clears throat> to like the Lopsis, a synopsis of the year 2454 Common Era, also known as year 2454 Anno Domini, also known as year 16 Anno Jehovah, by Dan <laughs> Thoreau, cannibal of many talents... Approved by the Cousins Bureau of Gentle but Veiled Recommendations, the Humanist Chamber of Incest, the Masonic <coughs> Imperial Technical College for Scandal and Corruption, and the Mitsubishi not a type of sushi, sashimi, mushishi, bikini, with a Gordian <laughs> sensitive people's rating of S3 for sex, sodomy, and strained philosophical references in Langus. V5 for improbable backflips, R4 for reference to religious themes, including but not limited to hypostasis, multiverse reincarnation, and deific kidnapping, and O3 for opinions liable to cause offense, including but not limited to bigotry, sexistry, racistry, incestry, misandry, misanthropy, Brock's <laughs> literary taste, and the phrase, honey, wet vagina. <laughs> Mm. 
That was one sentence. Oh, it's wow. extraordinary. Content warning. <laughs> Welcome, dear reader, to Two Like the Lopsis. It is the far future, as told to a farther far future. <laughs> Our narrator, Mycroft Canner, tells us about the day Carlisle Foster came to the Sinear Weeks booth bash. He has been assigned as their senseer for mysterious reasons. As he approaches the door, he is greeted by a child's cries. Dashing within the bash, he discovers that Pointer, a toy soldier brought to life, has recently died, which we are informed rather philosophically is not the same as having never lived at all, as is the usual remit of toys, and he is being mourned by his fellow toys, all of whom, apart from Sniper in his sad day at the beach costume, have been brought to life and are mourning in the active sense. I'm already confused by your synopsis. <laughs> now, does lopsis, is that just to rhyme with synopsis? Carlisle is shocked. <laughs> as one is when one's toys come to life. As a senseer, he is accustomed to discussing miracles, but not to witnessing them firsthand. Before he can freak out, he is grabbed by Mycroft and Thisbe. Mycroft is a servicer, one sentenced to a lifetime of service. Thisbe, we are told, is a witch. <laughs> they hold him fast against his struggle. Stop wriggling, intruder, Thisbe orders. Her tracker chirps, and she speaks into it in Spanish, addressing the other members of the bash upstairs. Donde esta la biblioteca? <laughs> Which, in translation, means, no, don't come downstairs. I only dropped some perfume. It smells rancid. I'll take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> Mycroft realizes that their prey is, in fact, a senseer. He's all, Thisbe, this is a senseer. If not, he is prepared to discuss the metaphysical, then whom, then whom? <laughs> ah, you are saying, dear listener of this synopsis. But what is this? What is going on? Dear listener, you must listen dearly. For that is how explanations and narratives function, apart from when professors of the University of Chicago recite them. I grant ye leave, thou poor listener, for ye have departed thine senses, but now hark and pluck thine ears continually and again. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee Ada Palmer, if she's listening, she's laughing. <laughs> yeah, she's appreciating it. <clears throat> Mycroft introduces Carlisle to Bridger, a young teenager with the power to bring anything he touches into reality. Hence the toys. As Carlisle observes, Bridger uses his powers to create a resurrection potion, which brings Pointer back to life. The implications are astounding. Verifiable miracles in this age of materialism and reason. One question looms over the conversation. Why has Bridger appeared now, of all times? Mycroft agrees that Carlisle should return tomorrow to introduce theology to Bridger in order to discuss these questions in more depth. Meanwhile, we're introduced introduced <laughs> Meanwhile, we're introduced to the nature of Earth in the 25th century. Mycroft is summoned to meet with the Mitsubishi, one of seven hives that dominates politics. He is able to move from South America to Asia in a matter of minutes, thanks to flying cars that are managed by the Mentats of the Sanir Weeks Booth Bash. <laughs> this system has led to the greatest period of peace and stability in human history, with both universal and subjective laws, no major crimes, and reservations for your irritating religious uncles. <laughs> <laughs> 
When he arrives, Mycroft is confronted by the leader of the Mitsubishi, Chief Director Ando, and his wife, Danae. Danae is one of the few women of the future who uses her gender as a tool. Mycroft addresses us directly and says, Observe, reader, how one desires to tear back her kimono to bear her honey-wet vagina. <laughs> On the bus, I shift uncomfortably. <laughs> In Japanese, Chief Director Ando is all, Toshokan wa dododesu ka, which in translation means the 710 list, which is functionally a tabloid list of the world's most influential people, akin to the For His Health magazine's world's hottest dudes of Hollywood of the 21st century, has been stolen <laughs> using the Canner device. And your name, Mycroft, your name is Mycroft Canner. Explain yourself. Mycroft prostates upon the floor and begs, the canner device was only a ruse, my master. When once forsooth I was arrested, I claimed to have used the device, but alas, I had not, for only had I purchased the box, not the artifact itself. Are you expecting us to laugh at these parts when no. you pause? <laughs> I'm enjoying the silence. We're going to gasp at the incredible drama of buying a box rather than the thing itself. It's like Shakespeare. Chief. He's smiling like a little boy at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I love this. Chief oh. Director Ando scowls. In Chinese, one of his counselors is all, Tu Shu Guanzai Nali, which in translation means, He is telling the truth, Chief Director, I can tell. We seek a much more dangerous enemy than this lowly servicer. Whomever has stolen the 710 list has brought our world to the brink of ruin. On the bus, my awkward erection has disappeared. <laughs> that you're Mycroft. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't write that. Later, Mycroft <laughs> flies to the censor's office, where I guess they do censuses. The censor reveals to Mycroft that the balance of the hives has shifted, perhaps in response to the theft of the 710 list. He reveals a set of portentous numbers. 3169... 6931, 6969. <laughs> Mycroft gasps. He's all, Hark, censor. If these numbers be the true, true, then for the first time in many a century, this world of ours, this pearly blue jewel, as round and supple as a tangerine that happens to be blue, could descend into a war of the civil war nature for the first time in. Wait, I said that part. Uh, S sorry, censor, I lost track of my prepositions. <laughs> In French, the censor is all, Oui, la bibliothèque. Yes, the library. Which, in translation, means, Indeed, Mycroft. I have never shuddered quite so wholly as at the sight of the number 69. Oh, wow. <laughs> the voices that you hear in your head. Yes. Yeah. At first, my inclination was to say, Nice. <laughs> Now, however, I must say, not nice, but even a little nice. What would happen were war to descend upon us? There are no borders. Bashes from competing hives live in proximity to one another in every city in the world. Everyone would die. It would be a, how you say, a bath of blood. For the next 300 pages, Mycroft <laughs> speaks to nine other people about the canner device. 
That, well, that's true. Yeah. About which, 300. which the world believed he had used to commit his crimes. At some point, there's a party at which Sniper, the world's greatest celebrity, does semantics. I'll tell you more, but I zoned out. <laughs> at this party, Mycroft speaks to the King of Spain, the head of Europe, who's named Ganymede, and the Emperor of the Masonic Empire. He also introduces us to the Utopians. They're a hive of moon people who wear costumes that depict the world around them as though through a window into an alternate reality. This is a practice intended to make them as alienating as possible by showing the world overrun by octopoda, ants, flames, and cannibals. <laughs> then they wonder why they're only invited to parties if they enter through the kitchen area. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, Car Carlisle returns to the Sanir Weeks booth bash to speak to Bridger, who on halfway come to expect was from another story. They talk about religion and God and Bridger's purpose. The extent of Bridger's power becomes apparent. He possesses a no-no box, which contains things that are very different from the contents of other 13-year-olds' no-no boxes. <laughs> In this case, the most stirring object is a black rubber ball. Were Bridger to touch it, the ball could transform into a black hole and swallow the entire earth. Carlisle is still thrilled, although now somewhat disquieted. At that exact moment, J.E.D.D. Mason appears at the bash to speak to its leader. In Latin, his all, ubi bibliothecum. <laughs> Why did they asking about the library? I don't, shh, no, this is what he, he said, which in translation means, <laughs> is what he said. Greetings, members of the Samir Weeks booth bash. I heard about the break-in that Dan forgot to synopsize and the 710 list which appeared in your wastebasket, which I understand in all my powers of understanding that Dan also forgot to synopsize. <laughs> I love truth so much that I capitalize it in my speech. So I must exit now, but be assured that I will matter more to this tale than thou canst fathom. Carlisle, this bash is a danger to thee. But I sense that thou must and shall continue to visit it, for thou lovest good, if not truth, perhaps dialectic, maybe praxis. So I leave now and leave thee to thine maker. <laughs> Carlyle gasps at this affront to the most important laws of their entire civilization. Meanwhile, I'm all, what exactly does honey wet vagina mean? I concur. It seems like an infection. <laughs> Carlisle and Thisbe decide to investigate J.E.D.D. Mason. They use the Sanir Weeksbooth Bash's computers and Mentats to track his car, which often converges on Paris. They follow and discover the most horrific of edifices, a church. They enter and are accosted by a nun who mentions that she worships J.E.D.D. Mason, whose name, we learn, is actually Jehovah, Epicurus Donatian de Eroet Mason. On the street corner outside, a busker with a trombone goes, <laughs> Mycroft appears. He's known about this hidden church all along. He tries to persuade Carlisle and Thisbe to escape before they're discovered by the wardens who rule this roost. But their curiosity gets the better of them. Then Thisbe mentions Mycroft's name for the first time within Carlyle's earshot. Calm down, Canner. Carlyle begins to shake. In Lithuanian, his all, Kuryara Biblioteka? <laughs> Which in translation means Mycroft Canner? 
the Mycroft Canner, the worst criminal of the past 300 years, he who kidnapped, tortured, murdered, and cannibalized the Marty Bash in its entirety. Mycroft's all, forsooth, one of them did escape. As reviewers have to escape from the clutch of the morning leaf. <laughs> this be all, Minecraft, you weren't helping. <laughs> Before he can internalize what he's heard, Carlisle is summoned along with Thisbe into the church's inner sanctum. There they learn that the world's leaders are gathered together. They're doing incest things. <laughs> Politically uh-huh. incest, um, mm-hmm. but also literally. <laughs> Because some of them are related, and they like to touch each other's butts. Carlisle is shocked, but before he can squawk out a protest, the leader of the Cousins Hive decides to cut out the incesting in order to chat with him about how this is actually a very good thing. By coming to this place and engaging in illegal gender and religion things, the world's leaders get along much better, really, I promise. (laughs) Sitting on my chair, I look out the window wistfully to the spot where I last had an argument with my weird neighbor about gender and religion, and sigh wistfully as I contemplate Ada Palmer's utopia. (laughs) 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 But not for the incest reasons. Right. I hope that. Just the religion stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mycroft senses that he will soon be unable to reach Bridger, so he contacts Saladin, his secret lover, to go look for him. And, if absolutely necessary, to kill him before he can be captured. One of J.E.D.D. Mason's agents, a pervert named Dominic, has tortured one of Bridger's toys to death. Saladin finds Bridger weeping and takes him far away beyond the reach of the Masons. At that very moment, another of J.E.D.D. Mason's agents, Martin Guildbreaker, contacts Papa Dalius, the chief of the police for the entire Hive system. He's discovered that the Sanir Weeksbooth Bash has been secretly assassinating people for years in order to keep the hive system from collapsing. In Greek, Papadelius is, is all, Poenae Bibliotheki. <laughs> <laughs> Which in translation means, Holy smoke, Sir Martin. <laughs> the implications of this breach are far reaching. Oh my God. We live in a utopia, it is true, the greatest political system ever conceived, yet paid for with the blood of the innocent. Perhaps this is a commentary on the nature of golden ages, utopias, and the renaissances in general. (laughs) That they are guilt, yes, but guilt with mere leafing over blood, over bone, over rot, all the way to the bottom. And that for all our advances and all our unity... (laughs) We are the same animals that lived and fought and snarled in darkness and the caverns in eons past. That the lessons of the past 10,000 years will never overwrite the lessons of the million before that. <laughs> Martin Guildbreaker is all, Papa, that's all Greek to me. <laughs> that was all encompassed in that one phrase, huh? Greek is a very dense language. <laughs> it's efficient. And then... Yeah. The end. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was that was a very fun synopsis that I don't think will give any information to anybody else. <laughs> Maybe we can need a spoiler warning. But the thing is, I was trying to, like... 
I wasn't even trying to be funny. <laughs> like, I noticed all the. <laughs> but the uh, but like half the time I'd come up with something goofy and I'd be like, well, that's just something that occurred. <laughs> like they get bugged by a nun. Yeah. Yeah. That was a weird part. And like the party where like he like sniper Frankenstein's and it's just weird. Yeah. I was like, no, this is like too weird to put in the synopsis. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank well you. done. Nicely done, Dan. Oh, thank you. That was hard. That was a hard book to synopsize. <laughs> yeah. It was a hard book to read. <laughs> and Ada Palmer is going to tune in and you're all going to feel foolish for insulting her feelings. Oh, I don't think I'll feel bad. I think the book is written for a specific purpose. (laughs) And I am not part of that purpose. (laughs) 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 All right, Brock, take this discussion away. No, it's your turn. Oh, 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 you're right. I'm sorry. You're correct. It is my turn to do bad takes. I found this a difficult book to find these on. I mean, I think I complain about that every time, but anyway, I don't know. So here's, I found the most helpful bad takes on Amazon, as is normally the truth. Yeah. Yeah, this one is from someone in the UK, about as irritating a book as I've ever read. Self-indulgent tosh. I'd avoid. I gave up caring what any of the characters got up to. Mostly, however, it was indecipherable. It just made me angry. An almost thankfully unique experience. Six people found this helpful. Mm. One out of five stars. <laughs> <laughs> Not worth the time. I think this person is... Um, Maybe not as educated as they think they are. (laughs) I find a lot of people who read things that are maybe above their intellectual level like to say that the author is self-indulgent or um, pretentious. Pretentious, Pretentious, yes. Yeah. Anyway. Also, this person did not hyphenate (laughs) self-indulgent. Yeah, it's double underlined here in my Word document, so... (laughs) And I, 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 what do you think, Brock? I mean, do do you think it was irritating and indecipherable? What do you think? I had kind of an, I had an issue with kind of the, and I have it written down as the nudge, nudge writing style. Uh, I do. I definitely think, I think there were moments of, of uh, being self-indulgent for sure. Mm -hmm. And maybe that does reveal me as, as uh, (laughs) a, as not up to the intellectual task of this book. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I do think there were times where, I mean, I have a, I have a sentence written down. I think that Jed J E D D said that was, I apologize for this mismatch in the radii of our consequentialism. And I just about threw the book across the room. (laughs) No one, no one speaks like that. No one should write like that. I just oh Brock. Can I can I say two things? Absolutely. Okay. If the one of them thing. is radii of our consequentialism, though, okay. we will have words. First of all, I'm going to defend Brock. Okay. <laughs> this book is self-indulgent. Yes. It's also meant to be. Okay. Because Mycroft Canner is a freak. 
And he's sure, yes. so arrogant. <laughs> so like one of the scenes where it talks about they're at Sniper's party and then outside there's like some street thugs picking on the utopians. And it's like, and then I, Mycroft, kind of dove through the window and did a perfect Olympian roll and intruded and said, get ye back, you black hands. That's, that's the whole thing is he's writing his history. And if you think he's a reliable narrator, instead of making himself sound just amazing at everything. And he is, he's a genius. Okay. There's a reason he is in the orbit of all of these people. Mm-hmm. He's not without talent, but he is also incredibly interested in himself. Yeah, he's a narcissist. He's a total narcissist. Um, and and when you reach that point, for instance, when there's the twist with him, which I hope we discuss, um, I think it reveals even more the depths of his narcissism because you find out some of his like he he created like a whole philosophy that some people still advocate. The guy's a total narcissist. He's like the founder religion narcissist. <clears throat> well, and I, and I, um, yeah, never mind. I have nothing to add there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the second thing, um, J.E.D.D. Mason is supposed to talk like he does not know how people talk. Yes. And there's, and there's a reason for that. Right. But it's in the second book. Okay. <laughs> I mean, but he, I mean. I think there's enough of a reason for that in, you know, in this book, like he is a, he is one of two Messiah figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as such, he is, <clears throat> he is beyond, you know, things like <laughs> speaking. He's like the unapproachable Messiah of the book. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So, um, Here's another one. There's a right way and a wrong way to write a story like this. Cause so many um, books are like this idiot. One out of five stars. <laughs> that was editorializing on some. Oh, Park. sorry. That, yeah. <laughs> but he, he mentions Neil Stevenson's Anathem. 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 It introduces a complex new world with dozens of new concepts, but Stevenson takes the time to explain them and makes them seem real, fleshed out, and understandable. The lives of his characters in their world make sense. This book, on the other hand, is needlessly turgid, overwrought, and the author is very poor at introducing her setting and concepts. Her characters, moreover, are inscrutable and opaque. And then they said, frankly, I gave up at about 10% of the way in. So this person didn't even finish the book. Okay, come on. Ten <clears> percent. <throat> so yeah. I, I find, you know, even though it wasn't a book that I necessarily enjoyed, I, you know, I still defend, I will still defend the the craft of it because I think that, I, I don't think that every, uh, every world has to be explained in great detail by the author mm-hmm. because we don't we don't explain our world to each other we we mm-hmm. experience and live it and by experiencing a world that is foreign to you like you know when, when you when you read a novel you're experiencing the world like the people who live in the world and you're being immersed in that way and i and i think that i think that ada palmer does a good job of that uh, you know, I, I, there are other things I object to with this book, but that is not 
that is yeah. not a point of criticism that I have. Well, I love that you say that, Brock, because I think that it's especially true in this book because the purpose of this book ostensibly is that Mycroft is telling the history of what happened over the course of a week. Yes. And he's doing it to explain those events to regular people. Now, part of the problem is this and Seven Surrenders, they're meant to be the same book. Um, And they were chopped in half for publication reasons, I think. Interesting. Okay. Which is, so it's supposed to be twice as long. (laughs) Um, I I may not have started it if it had been twice Mm -hmm. as long. I don't think we would have done it. Yeah. What are the, what are the pros and cons of making it? Yeah. I, I I think that it was a good idea to cut it in half. Unfortunately, it just kind of ends because it's like a chapter break uh, straight into the second book. But the, uh, what I think I, it should have ended like one chapter earlier. But but what I love about what you're saying, Brock, is because Mycroft is trying to explain what has happened to the common man, there is no common man in this book. At no point do you get any sense for like how a regular person, what do they actually do? Right. You never see people on the street. You never see their parties. You see rich and powerful, slightly corrupt, weird, incestuous leaders. Mm-hmm. I would say they're very corrupt, but okay continue well see some of this is coming from the second book so i'll i can't say too much but the uh so you're seeing people in all of their flaws but it's it's great man theory of history the common man does not exist for all intents and purposes because he's writing to the common man he doesn't need to tell them like well in your day you have all these little commutes and it's fine because it takes you like five minutes to go across the continent and you know i mean he doesn't have to tell them that so yes. I, I, I like what you're saying there, Brock, because I think it actually uh, reveals a depth of craft that perhaps this this uh, little blurb overlooked. Yes. Slash I didn't agree. get to. <laughs> yeah, 10% of the book, yeah. Um, and then one more thing from this review. I absolutely hate it when authors use they, their to refer to people in the singular. This is a perversion of language and it's unnecessarily confusing in an already pretentious and confusing book. Well, person, I feel like this may be something that you need to get used to. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guarantee this person, if you say like the mail came, I guarantee you say something like, oh, did they just come? Like now I agree that this is something that sometimes takes getting used to because generally they and there as a third person uh, singular is meant to depersonify people. It it shows that they don't matter to you. And now we're moving into a phase of language where we're using it as a, as a uh, signal of dignity and it's it's also it's not that's non-gender affiliated. Yeah. Because and, we don't you don't might not necessarily know what their gender is. Right. And so so it's a tool of dignity which is a, a direct contrast to the way we generally employ it in language. So I agree it can be awkward when you're not used to it. Right. I will grant that concession. Yeah. But um <clears throat> But as for the people who are like, that's never done. Oh, you, yeah. no, you, you just do it without <laughs> noticing. Okay. Exactly. Because it, yeah, it just, because it's, it is, a, um, and I, I think it's a vague, you know, you can use it to refer to a, to a singular person in a vague sense and they're not used to it being used in a specific sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Specific person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I actually have a note for my discussion 
uh, about that as well, about uh, singular gender neutral pronouns. Um, and because one thing that has taken me some getting used to is that you have to pluralize because you're using they, you're using plural forms of, of other words. And that takes a minute for your, mm, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> you know, f- for your brain to adjust. I'm talking about a single person, but yeah. Yeah. But the, <clears throat> yeah. You know, if anything, I was surprised that this didn't contain like alternate programs, like pronouns, like she and here. I, I had a whole list. I was going to bring a whole list. Yeah. Um, especially hundreds of years in the future. Well, so do those remind me what they what remind me what they Well, mean? there's a whole bunch, but for but some people prefer like so she in here for gender ambiguous like she is both she and he, it's z h e and here is h i r. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a very good book by Peter Watts called The Freeze Frame Revolution where one of the characters is intersex. And that character goes by she and here mm-hmm. uh, as your pronouns. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a surprise because it's not something you hear uh, every day. But it's it, in, the, in the way that Watts uses it, it's actually pretty cool because um, when Watts has three people speaking and he has a female, a male, and then this intersex um, person, he can use pronouns very freely. Exclusively, yeah. And he doesn't need to refer to their names. Mm. Now, it's still a little awkward because it's just so new to language. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is kind of cool to see. And it's a, it's a very tight book. It's a very interesting book. Um, so it works in that context. Well, so, That's interesting. Yeah. So does someone who says that they are G, do they say that they are both genders or that they're neither? It can depend. There's a whole range of alternate pronouns, actually. Oh, well, I mean, she... I think Ada Palmer probably just didn't want to include that, that, that breadth, that breadth. Yeah, she may not have. And I wonder too, I mean, maybe at some point there, like there's, um, there's a section in one of the books where it does side by side text that actually columnates the text so that while one person is talking, another person's talking and you can see how they're talking over each other. Mm. And um, this is in that other book. Yeah. Yeah, and she just does so many radical things that I wonder if certain things she was like, well, let's spare the reader too many. Who is this? Ada Palmer, the oh. author. Um, that no, was in what? It, in like the third book in this series, oh. in Terra Ignota, she oh. actually columnates the text. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> not just in some sections, not like the whole thing. Uh-huh. All right, well, in the last, the last uh, reviewer that I think just didn't that had a bad take uh said that uh that it was an attempt at science fiction okay (laughs) as the science fiction judge (laughs) this is science fiction i know when you were watching transformers everything made sense to you first of all that's astounding it didn't make sense to me like were they born good and bad but also this is this is science fiction. That's insane. Okay, why is it science fiction? I mean, I know it is, but you. But why don't why don't you just say why? Well, first of all, there's a certain brand of purism that I find sort somewhat distasteful um, that says that it can only be science fiction if it's hard science. That's silly. So, like rocket thrust science. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we already read that. We read that book. Ignite my sure solid objective. <laughs> but anyway, um, I I like the I like the view that social science is a bit harder than those people generally know, uh, probably because they read bad history. I, I think social science is fair game for uh, for for science fiction. And frankly, this if if you accept social sciences as science, this was one of the hardest sci-fi books I have ever read. It is grounded in the argumentation and the formulae. It is conversant. It has read its literature. This is harder sci-fi than The Expanse. Oh, yeah. And The Expanse has been lauded for trying to use, you know, real physics and, and real technology. So it's hard-ish science fiction. This is absolutely hard sci-fi. It's just that it's hard social sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just... It is very unique. It's very different. But I would I would definitely call it science fiction for sure. And there's no question. Well, and frankly, part of the reason I think it's hard sci-fi is I had the same struggles reading this that I have reading hard sci-fi. Because in hard sci-fi, you often, you know, they're talking about difficult concepts, usually mechanical systems and physics. Uh, and you have to sit down and slow down and try to understand them so that you understand the... And the look par- things up. And look things up so you <laughs> understand the parameters the story is taking place in. Yeah. The same is true here. Now, I was thrilled to you know hear philosophers evoked that I've read those books. Um, I think I was telling Summer that I, you know, when uh, we talked about Deshad, um, his little example about the limitations of reason, um, about... <laughs> a circular peg going in a circular hole instead of a different sized hole. Um, I've read that and it's really exciting to read something that engages so conversantly uh, with philosophy up to a point. Uh, whether that point was reachable by you know someone like me is is debatable. Well, and it's quite deliberate. I don't think that's a slam on Ada Palmer, but there's no modern philosophy in this book. Yeah, it stops at the Enlightenment, and that's that's fine. That's what its cultures people care about. So right. Yeah. All right. Okay. So there are my bad takes that I found. Brock. Is there anything left to discuss? <laughs> you, you really got through a lot of my stuff, which I think is good. Um, no, I, you know, I talked about the uh, kind of the gender confusion. <laughs> I, man, I had some, one example that I really liked uh, was when they, oh, they meet this, this black law who is a cook, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh and Mycroft is referring to her to her as a she, um, and describing her as uh, in in very male masculine terms, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, broad shouldered, and I probably like scruffy and and bearded, and um, and the <laughs> this is honestly one of my favorite one of my favorite things from the book. Uh, okay. Um, I know it is confusing that I must call this cousin, uh, Carlisle, he, um, with Chagatai, however, your guess is wrong. It is not her job, which makes her 
uh, which makes me give her the feminine pronoun, despite her testicles and chromosomes. <laughs> I saw her once when someone threatened her little nephew, and the primal savagery with which those thick hands shattered the offender was unmistakably the legendary strength which lionesses, she-wolves, she-bats, she-doves, and all other she's obtain. This is my favorite sentence in the whole book. When motherhood berserks them. <laughs> that strength wins her she. And so I just have written down. So every time in this book when someone is a she, am I supposed to assume that it's because they've been berserked by motherhood? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think I think so. Uh, I just I just really loved that, and and it is a, you know, it's an intentional inversion of what we typically think mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. about gender roles, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's not the only example. You know, there's plenty of examples of uh, gender confusion. Um, so I guess so. The you know the discussion topic is like what's what's the uh what purpose is that confusion serving um you know is it is it ada palmer's commentary on how far we have come uh with regards to gender uh you know this sort of prediction of um of where things will progress um cuz cuz for me it it seems perhaps not to take big enough steps maybe for being hundreds of years in the future well, for how careful they pretend to be about avoiding gender, I mean, this narrator sure tells us a lot, you know, he's still making gender references like that, that yeah. this person reacts in a, you know, the berserk of, of mother, you know, like mama bear. That's what right. it is. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, so he's still assigning like, gender role character characterization i don't know how to phrase it do you know what i mean no, like yes yeah exactly a characterization <clears throat> so it's kind of like it's it's just it's a taboo topic and i don't those are the things that tend to get discussed a lot in secret you know they're still there it's just that nobody's talking about them well i think that's a major theme in this book right that that certain things they so <clears throat> So I, I'll put it this way. So this book presents a system that sounds so utopian, but that's only kind of if you think about the system itself, right? Like this, like when you think about the system, this idea that of, of the Japanese ibasho and being able to be and a part of a family where you belong, um, and and just think about any stress you've had with your family, especially as you kind of part ways or values. And I think a lot of that has been felt uh, in our culture very recently with the election that people, it, it hurts when you butt heads with members of your family. Yes. That's a profoundly hard thing. Mm -hmm. And what this book proposes is maybe that doesn't happen in these bashes. So you work light weeks. You don't define yourself as your job. You can commute anywhere you want in the world within two hours um, your family is literally composed of people who share your interests and your culture, um, but their actual intrinsic traits are just so immaterial. 
you don't need to worry about their gender or their race or any of those things. It's, it's all about this interest and what do you want your career to be? And people who want to be careerists can be careerists together. And people who want to be nurturing and have families can do that. People who want to goof off in a certain way can do that together. It's a beautiful system. But the book isn't about that. The reason I think that the book keeps tying back to the Renaissance is because just looking at the history, we think of the Renaissance as a golden age. The Renaissance sucked. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, if you lived in the Renaissance, like compared to the medieval age, life expectancy was almost half of what it had been like a century earlier. Um, Disease and military companies and inflation They were rampant. Um, And that stands, to some degree, that's a testament to what they accomplished in the Renaissance, despite all of that. But when we think of this Renaissance as a golden age, we are not looking at the individual stories of the Renaissance that paint this picture that it's a desperate, brutish time. Um, That security is tied directly to you being near a powerful person. That's terrible. There's no law, you know, that that stuff will eventually come out of it. But some of concepts of the Enlightenment largely come out of the Renaissance because of how bad the Renaissance is. This book is about that, at least to me. And I think Ada Palmer, just knowing a little bit about her background, that she teaches Renaissance, I get a lot of that out of it, that she presents this golden age society and then shows us it's not actually a golden age. It's rotten all the way through. And yeah, it, it, it is good. It has its good, just like the Renaissance did. It also has terrible corruption and it has terrible captivity. You know, think of Cato Weeks Booth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he would rather be anything else than what he's been made to be. Mm-hmm. Um, this and, and the same goes, I think, for this book's take on things like gender. So it presents basically the progressive ideal, maybe not as far as some people wanted to take it. I, I actually did read on a, on a feminist blog, someone who was writing about transpositive feminism in light of this book, and she was a bit upset that it, the book didn't go far enough. But I think that actually that's part of the trick of the book is that it's saying that we think of it in, in our day and age, and we're living in what the book terms the um, exponential age right? When technology and ideas are growing so fast. Um, So we think progressively that the world will just keep getting better and better and better. And I think this book actually says, no, there will be a veneer of it getting better and better and better. Well, and for certain people, it will. Yeah. And for certain people, it'll get better and better and better. But in terms of what you think about where gendered language should or shouldn't be, it's not going to be that. Um, We are still animals. We still have jealousies that can be exploited. We still inherently understand gender. And that, if we get rid of it, if we get rid of our ways of talking about gendered people and bodies, someone will exploit it. Because someone will always exploit everything. Um, Even in the sense that somebody is going to, you know, one thing, one phenomenon that is a little unfortunate Um, is when someone who's maybe a little fascist online appropriates the language of inclusion, right? And so anytime you question them, they go, 
well, what about my feeling? You're not being sensitive. You're assuming my gender, you know, and they kind of throw that in your face. Well, that's not genuine. That's appropriating an inclusive, you know, polity or, or a language. And this book has that happening left and right. Um, and so I love that, that it's showing us these progressive ideals borne out and then saying, just as the things that we have progressed on have been taken advantage of by certain people, so too will those. Hmm. And I think that's brilliant. Um, and I think it's also done so well that it's kind of hard to get it sometimes. Does that make sense? I think so. I think so. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I knew this, that this particular podcast was going to be mostly Dan talking. So I, you know, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. Well, I'm sorry if I'm monopolizing. No, I, I, uh, I think that was, I think this book was chosen on purpose to, for Dan, you know, it's for, this is a Dan book. That's all right. I enjoyed, I enjoyed that discussion. That was wonderful. Yeah, I think on the dedication page, it does say for Dan. <laughs> it might as well. This one's for you, buddy. <laughs> well, I did read that book about that kid dying or whatever. What? What? Yeah. What? That Paul Tremblay book that I was just like, oh. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Man, yeah. So <clears throat> I I'm I'm starting, you know, 15 or excuse me, 400 or something episodes in. I'm really realizing like my my appreciation for these books would probably be improved if 100 or so pages in, I just call Dan and I say, "Okay, what am I supposed to be <laughs> understanding so far?" <laughs> Who's who's the narrator? What kind of what who's telling me this story? Why are they telling me? Just give me some let's let's have a pre a precast before the podcast mm-hmm. so I can understand what that's this a good is. idea. Well, I could uh, be wrong, but that's no, because, what I said. because what you're saying is is really making a lot of sense, um, and uh, and and sort of. Um, you know, really seeing, and, and, you know, maybe I needed to recontextualize what I had already read at the point where, you know, it's revealed to us just who Mycroft Canner is. <clears throat> that was intense. And, you know, and, and honestly, at that point, I, f- I felt, a l- I felt some disgust with the book oh, yeah. of, of you, you know, you have made me spend time with and listen to this person. Yeah. Uh, and obviously that's, you know, that's intended. You had Carlisle's reaction. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, you, you know, almost just a, like a, a, uh, I, I felt, uh, complicit, you know, mm. that, that I had been, been reading this person's words. Um, well, and it's so incongruous with, yes. with how he, has portrayed himself so far. And then all of a sudden this is like thrown at you. It's very disconcerting. Yes. Did you even perhaps feel a little used? Oh yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and you know, and. Well, and it's also like he has no, um, he's just like, this is me. 
Well, <laughs> for someone who's apparently been pitched to us as penitent, yeah, he sure seems to take some dark glee in having gotten away with it as long as he has. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's very confusing. <laughs> Sorry, Brock, I interrupted you. Please continue. Oh, no. Um, no, not at I, I think you um, you kind of captured what I was what I was driving at. Um, yeah, I, I think that was, but I, but I think that uh, you know that that reveal and sort of uh, putting the rest of his narration in that in the context of <clears throat> he's a psychopath, he's mm-hmm. uh, you know he's a narcissist, he's he's self obsessed. And then, okay, so what is, you know, so knowing that, how do I feel about the things that he's told me for 250 pages? Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like you have to go back yeah. and read it all again. Yeah, which I will not be doing. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. A lot of the reviews I read when I was trying to find my bad takes were like, okay, this is my second reading because they felt like they needed to go back and reread everything after they finished it. Yeah. So I skimmed the first hundred pages actually after finishing the second book. <laughs> after oh, the second book. Yeah, after reading the second book, after reading Seven Surrenders, and a lot of stuff was clicking into place. Mm. Um, not not new stuff, but stuff from that I remember being confused about or flailing. Well, so mm. is that is that a is that a knock on the book then that you have to go back that you it's helpful to go back and reread those things at the beginning i mean just because you're told them at the beginning like are you supposed to i mean what's the point of that you know i think it could be i think that that would be a fair criticism even if it's intentional on the on the part of the author Mm -hmm. um and i think some of that is just what do you think a novel should be um do you think a novel should be self-contained that a novel should unfurl within one reading I mean, there's even questions like, should you have to engage with a novel paratextually? And, you know, what does that mean? That means you should you have to read things outside of the novel to understand it? Well, that's super annoying in terms of that one author that I intentionally never read that, like, used to be on every English literature's book list. Who is it? Ulysses, James Joyce. Yes, James Joyce. Uh, He's not a very good author because of that you have to have beat you had to have been you had to have read all the things that he read so that you could be on their little in their little club to read his books yeah and I, so what is that so what does that mean in terms of this one well i think that says something about us as readers um that that author is not necessarily trying to create something the, the author expects you to engage with the text paratextually now fortunately we live in an age where basically you can find annotated versions of ulysses Mm -hmm. That just the footnotes tell you everything that you need to know so you can cheat through it. Okay, so do we need an Ada Palmer footnote? You know, if she released one, um, Ada, I love you. I would buy it. (laughs) 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 Now, I understand from the reviews I read that in book two, there is a list of characters and their names. There is. Other things at the beginning of the book. And it's super helpful. To be able to just look at a list and it says like, here's all the important figures in the Mitsubishi. And you're just like, oh, okay. Here's all the important figures at Madame's. Well, see, that would have been helpful for this book. So did she just not realize she needed it? Did her editors not realize she needed that? Because I still like only vaguely know like who some of the people are. (laughs) 
<laughs> yep, same here. So I've reached so some of this is hard too because so much of this connects into the second book. Um, the second book literally picks up right where the first one left off. Um, With Papa? Not 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 like mid sentence. <laughs> oh. But in terms, but in, so think of how many th- threads were unresolved. Like all of them. Like everything. <laughs> we just barely learned about this big conspiracy. We still don't know who did the 710 list. We still don't know what's going on with the canner device. We still barely know about what's going on with J.E.D.D. Mason. Um, so we've got two messiahs, apparently. Are, I, are either of them real? So both of them have adherents, but we can't trust anything Mycroft has told us necessarily. So what are some of the things he's told us that have very few witnesses? Well, everything with Bridger. Pretty much it, you're relying on Mycroft and then Carlisle Foster's word. And Thisbe, who's a witch. Thisbe, yeah. So is that enough evidence to take him at his word? What about Major? <laughs> yeah, you could ask Major. <laughs> so is that enough to take him at his word? That he tells you that there is a there is a Messiah who, at least in terms of his raw power, seems to put Jesus to shame. Because Jesus never made a right. had the threat of making a black hole. Right. <laughs> As far as I know, maybe. Don't write me, Evan. No. But, <laughs> but I mean, if, if true, Bridger is just earth-shaking. Mm-hmm. Is he real? And, and questions like that, some of that is historical text reading. Um, so I do well, have training in if that. If he's not real, then what's Dominic doing? Yeah, and that raises great questions. Because Dominic is messed up. Oh, man, you're going to hate Dominic in the second book. Oh, no. <laughs> Kill him, Selena Sal- Sal- Saladin. <laughs> I keep wanting to call him Selenidin. I don't know why. Or like, every time I see it, I'm, I, inten- I unintentionally correct it. So I'm like, ah, there's Salahuddin. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Saladin. Yes, I'm always, um, yes, that always, that name always evokes, uh, uh, Israel for me from our trip. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, sorry. Tangent. Just a third crusade reference. <clears throat> oh, okay. <laughs> That's Sal- all. Sal- Sal- who beat uh, the French and Richard the Lionheart in the third crusade. Oh, excellent. Salah Aldin. It's kind of spelled similar. Yeah, that's the Christianization is Saladin. Yeah, there we go. Sorry, Brock. Do you think that? Do you think that's intentional? Oh, yeah. certainly. Don't apologize. Well, Brock, are you? So, is that a useful recontextualization? Like, I I think it is, um, honestly. And I'm actually looking at a page I had open because one of my some of my uh, discussion topics are just me complaining. Uh, <laughs> well, I want to hear them. Yeah, so really. This one is on page two hundred and twelve. Mycroft imagines that I would object to having Bridger named the protagonist. No objections here. Let's get things moving. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So so I'm open to that page. Yeah. And and it is an interesting uh, reading of this page where he's, uh, Mycroft is having both sides of a conversation with us, the reader. Mm -hmm. We are saying, uh, you know, you're the protagonist of this story. Uh, you know, it, uh, so it says, uh, 
in my mind, I have called the protagonist from the first page, thou who art omnipresent in thy tale and who walkest the corridors of power so familiarly, how couldst thou not be thine own protagonist? And, and, you know, and that's what he's imagining us, the reader saying. And then the next paragraph is him saying, I smile at the compliment, generous reader. Uh, <laughs> and it, like it, it uh, creeps me out just a little. Yeah. It, He's being self-indulgent. That yeah, he's, yeah, he's flattering himself. <laughs> he is, exactly. Oh, no. Yeah, he, Rita. <laughs> he is writing his own history uh, in, in, a, in a very masturbatory way, right? Right. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's gratifying himself with this, this oh, exercise. Yeah. Well, that's one of the first lessons in reading a historical document, is anytime you read a history, you're really reading two histories. You're reading the history they're telling you, and you're also reading the history of the author. Yeah. Even if they don't intend it. Mycroft, I think, intends it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brock, just hit us with them. I, I will not. I, I know that I can sometimes argue, but if you want to just throw criticisms of the book out, I will not just be like, well, but I'll, 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 I'll take the body blows. So... Uh, um, I, th- I think, I, I mean, in that kind of, you know, me calling out page 212, <laughs> um, the, I have other criticisms in that vein, um, that I did, I did feel like it was really slow to, to, to tell me anything interesting. Oh, I know. I, like, I, I could would... not, I could not bring myself to look at the 710 lists. My eyes slid right off that page. Oh, yeah. I don't care about, oh, these two lists are slightly different. Well, you have Brock, me hooked. Brock, I would, I would read, you know, my allotment for the week or whatever for, you know, the day that I would read it. Mm-hmm. And then I'd be like, okay, I read like a hundred pages, honey, and nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right? I, I, I agree that there are some pacing problems with this novel. You know, and, and the last maybe 20 pages, things really started moving Yeah, and, and I started to, I started to get real annoyed just, okay, now, now you're going to start, you know, start having things be exciting and, you know, and there's, there's pieces falling into place. She sure knows how to write a cliffhanger. <laughs> goodness. Well, and apparently it's the middle of a book, so. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, and I don't think, I don't think I felt entirely critical. Uh, You know, I, I don't think I disliked the whole thing. I, I think there are some uh, things about that. It were genuinely thought provoking. And um, I think this book had some really interesting approaches to, uh, to faith. I, you know, I thought Carlisle as a, you know, a sort of, the ultimate non-denominational preacher, maybe, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's multi-denominational, all denominations. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his approach to letting people uh, come to their own conclusions. Uh, I, I really enjoyed reading those. Uh, I thought, I thought those were a very sort of interesting and, and just showing, you know, the depths that, that we do have to go through in faith and, you know, and in coming to, to believe anything, 
Yeah. So I, you know, I, I think I, I think I hated some of it. <laughs> I, I won't, I won't, I won't say I didn't hate any of it. Uh, but, but I did, I did appreciate, uh, you know, there, there were genuine parts that I appreciated and, and thought were, were quite well done. Uh, I mean, that's, and those, you know, those are really the, the discussion topics I had. Uh, I, I can't recommend it. <laughs> oh man. I think, I, I think I'm firmly in that boat uh, with summer. Well, let me ask this question. Which hive would you want to be in? Oh boy. Uh, All right. Well, tell us what they are and what they do. <laughs> those, those utopian uh, jackets sounded real cool, right? Oh yeah. And they've got like dragons and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. And sphinxes and <laughs> which tribe would you? Which hive would you? Which tribe? Which <laughs> hive would you be in? Here, I'm I'm opening up a chart of them. Oh, fantastic! So that so that we can uh, okay. So there's the humanists. Mm-hmm. Okay, they they human exceptionalism, basically, right? Mm-hmm. The cousins. Their government, remember, is a suggestion box. Right. Yes. The humanists, by the way, they are a constitutional democracy. There's the Masonic Empire, which is an absolute monarchy that is not hereditary. It has a line of succession, but uh, it actually cannot pass to children. There's the Gordian Institute, which you can remember is the Brillist Institute. Um, they basically just have a brain bash. They like they're learning. Smart. They like they're psychologists, right? Okay. And they can they can recite a string of numbers that assign to people, and they know that person like really well. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's Europe, which is basically the EU. <laughs> um, they're a parliamentary democracy, and so if you're Europe, and I love that in this, the two groups that like can't get over their identity are like Asians and Europeans. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Kind of a dig. Anyway, the, <laughs> speaking of which, there's the Mitsubishi, which is a shareholder uh, democracy. So that's fun. There's Utopia, um, which they're just weird and want to go to Mars. And then lastly, of course, there are three levels of Hiveless, um, White Law, Gray Law, and Black Law. Um, which means you don't feel like you fit into any of them and you follow different levels of laws. Black law being the most extreme, even to the point where it is legal for you to kill each other. Yeah, count me into that one. Let's go black law. I want to be black law. (laughs) (laughs) Dang it, I was going to make that joke. (laughs) Honestly, I'm so grumpy at stuff like this. I'd probably be like gray law, poly law. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the people who trains in like, going and telling other people their laws. This is definitely <laughs> going to be the new uh, Harry Potter sorting hat thing, right? <laughs> One of the jokes, Summer works in a doctor's office and she will often come home and tell me the ludicrous crap that patients will do to the people or say to the people who are trying to help them, mm-hmm. which is obscene. <laughs> people, if you're listening, you should be good and decent to other humans. <laughs> and I, and I've often told her that there should be a career called a BS caller. <laughs> Who, what it is, is like a bunch of doctor's offices just contract with one BS caller or like 
restaurants or grocery stores, every business would contract with like one BS collar <laughs> for that block of buildings. Yeah. And this BS collar is independent of them. So there's no legal, there's no liability. Right. But they call and they're like, okay, this, this person's being super entitled about like the tangerines not being plump enough or something. <laughs> and you come and the BS caller comes in and they go, act like a decent human being, you piece of shit. The tangerines are not the real problem. Oh, yeah. And I, think I would love to do that as a career. Yeah, wow. I would love for that to exist. I'm, uh, I'm not nearly confrontational enough. To do that as a career. I probably am not either, but I think it would be a great thing for society. Yeah, I agree. Someone who just comes and like, you sprayed a bunch of gasoline on the cement, and like chew them out. <laughs> You're going to clean it up. That's your job now. <laughs> what do you think you don't want to pay for other people's health care? You have health insurance. And then yeah, you gets collared, yeah. shows up and screams at you. <laughs> Don't well, anyway, you understand so- your health insurance? You're already paying for other people's coverage. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, so that to me, that's what like a gray law poly law would do. Okay. Yeah. Is like, you're like, your laws don't apply. And you go shout at them. <laughs> <laughs> Even though you did that little review of all the hives, I, I still don't. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> You'd be a cousin. What? Because they do all the health care. Hmm. Okay. Well, I feel like you're forcing me into this like Cato Weeks booth. I feel like I'm not uh, uh, I'm not qualified for any of them. So I, yeah, <laughs> I think it's gray law for me. Well, this question went nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> I like the idea of, you know, of, of utopians reaching for the stars. I like the idea of uh, the humanists, human exceptionalism. Yeah, I feel like they've moved. They've moved beyond me, though. <laughs> maybe, maybe in a in a future that I would have uh, a very hard time navigating. Yes, if we were transported there right now, I I think we would just be um, immediately become servicers because yeah, like, what <laughs> for the sandwiches <laughs> and break some law and we'd be in trouble. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like taking somebody's tracker. Yeah. Like, what's this? They're like, that's the second law. Oh, I I am actually very curious about the the servicer thing. And and just essentially that it's a, I mean, is it a slavery class? Yeah. People who are, you know, who have committed crimes and, well, now you belong to the state and you you labor all the time for no pay. Well, yeah. So the claim is, is that there's like little crime, but there sure seem to be a lot of servicers. Yeah. They were around for sure. Utopia, my eye. (laughs) What do you say to that, Dan? No, I agree. That's the point. Yeah. Okay. It's rotten to the core. All right. Yeah. Right. I think it's even intentional because they're, who was it that said that a, the measure of a society is how they treat their prisoners? Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar? I thought it was, I thought I had heard that as children and maybe or just really recently how they treat their children. 
that sounds like something like a Christian family used. To- oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me look it up. Okay. He's looking it well, up. We treat him pretty good in our society. Well, apparently it's Gandhi. The measure of a civilization is how it treats its weakest members. Oh, so I can see some Christian mom being like, that means children. That means children. It does not mean the poor. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't mean poor and prisoners and refugees and immigrants and <laughs> people who can't get into good schools or afford tutors. It means my nine year old. <laughs> yeah. It means my child who's <laughs> in the good soccer team. We should probably stop this. <laughs> my name is Margaret Sanger. I'm oh, just kidding. I was trying to come up with a name of someone like who a fictional name of someone who lives nearby, some mom who would say this. Right. And then I said Margaret Sanger on accident. <laughs> <laughs> and then you said it again. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think I think I recall that it's my job to finish this uh, thing. Oh, shoot. It's right. my job to finish this podcast. So welcome. I mean, thank you for listening if you made it this far. Next time, we'll be reading another book. Well, I mean, we'll have read another book by the next time. And I think we're going to read, it's my turn, I believe. Is that correct, Brock? Yes. We're going to read Seven Surrenders. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Unless you want to. I was going to put it to a vote between um, the Poppy War. Poppy Poppy War. The Poppy War. By R.F. Quang. Okay. Or, or is it Kuang? I, I don't know. Or or the Seven Surrenders. What's the vote? I mean, the Seven Surrenders, this is like, I'm not going to read it if it's not for the podcast, but. <laughs> right. <laughs> what if Dan agrees to have discussions with you about what's go- what the hell is going on in the book while you're reading it? I trained me Rocky style. You've already read it. Well, I know, but I could be wrong. It doesn't matter. You'll help him understand it if you want. That, this, so this, oh, I, I'm, kind yeah. of, I'm kind of pushing off my choice to you, Brock. Have you read Have you read The Poppy War? I have not. Okay. So it's the choice between two books that you haven't read. One in which you get to communicate with Dan on like maybe a daily basis. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> page by page. Yeah. Every- <laughs> Dan! <laughs> I have a different ringtone for Brock. Sure, yeah. It's the Brock phone. <laughs> or the Poppy War, which I understand is good. <laughs> you know what? Let's let's do seven surrenders. Let's All right. Go for it. And and Dan, I trust your wrong more than I trust my own interpretation. So well that's very generous of I think, you. But I, I have we'll get some somewhere good. wrong. I'm super wrong. So. <laughs> um well I'm excited. I'm excited for to see if uh you the so I will say this is not a spoiler that the second book is more action packed. Like yeah. more happens more quickly. All right. Well that's good. Because it's done all the groundwork. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you. Hopefully it won't be in another fiscal quarter. Five months or whatever it was. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Thank you for joining us in the Space Biff Book Space. Our theme music is Day Trips by Cat 
Piazza. Join us next month for another discussion, and in the meantime, you can email us at spacebiffbookspace at gmail.com.